1: slash thrive Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host, and our guest today is Mark Willis. He is a certified financial planner. He is also president of Lake Growth. Uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit about the work he does with businesses to help them figure out how to self finance, how to basically be their own bank. In our prep, I like to saying look help people fire their bankers and get off of uh, <laughs> get off of external sources of cash, so they can be more independent. And they can have better resources, they can have more control, ultimately, so that they can grow and scale more quickly, more strategically. I'm excited for this. Just for notes for guests, we're recording this uh, kind of mid-April here. So we're in the thick of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, a lot of crazy things going on in the world, a lot of volatile business situations. Many companies are struggling. Unfortunately, many companies are struggling around the cash side of it. So we're certainly going to talk about things, but we want to really focus on how leaders can be in better control of their finances have more choices, be more strategic with the work they do. I'm really excited about this. I think we always say scaling consumes cash. So cash is a huge part of being able to grow and scale your business. So I think this is going to be really helpful and really valuable. With that, Mark, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure having you here. So let's talk a little bit about your background and how you kind of got into the space. And then, yeah, let's, we'll talk about how you work with companies to help them figure out how to have more control over the finances, get more sort of self-finance. Uh, but what's the backstory? How did you get into this line of work?
0: Well, it wasn't on purpose, that's for sure. It was by accident, kind of walking backwards into financial planning. I had gone through undergrad and then graduate school and a totally different career path and totally different focus. And left college, the biggest lesson, there were a lot of incredible things you learn in college, of course, but my wife and I left college with six figures of student loan debt in the midst of 2008's Great Recession. We didn't know what it was called that at the time, but we left college in May of 2008 and tried to start our careers in the midst of that, that last crisis. Yeah and uh, little did I know that be a transformative experience in how we paid off the debt. And, you know, we went from an employee mindset to a business owner mindset. Mm-hmm. In these last 10 plus years, we've had uh, an incredible upsurge in paying off our debt, of course, and our net worth at, as a whole. We've been able to find safety and predictability and security in the midst of this now 2020s global pandemic health crisis and financial crisis because they are one in the same. And, you know, that's the short story, but Man, it's an incredible journey. People's uh, passions are sometimes found in the most unique places. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't until we graduated from college that we really knew what we wanted to do with our lives. Yeah. And so, how
1: did? Um, I mean, give us a little bit of the the lessons learned. I mean, I I know that every every challenge you know has, has a has a lesson buried in it. What were some of the things your real takeaways from having to go through that in two thousand eight and and the financial crisis then? What were the things that you you took away in terms of how you approach finances, how you approach business? Your thinking
0: about the economy. Well, yeah, it was a one big lesson after the other if you remember those days. I remember we moved to Chicago with no job, no plan to pay off the debt, no budget really, and this massive student loan payment that felt like a mortgage and yeah, we just had had to get scrappy. And that's really what honestly, Bruce, what got me focused on money yeah. was our own lack of a plan. And my first, you know, sort of taste of it all was traditional average mainstream financial investment advice. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds. So we jumped in and I uh, worked, with, on a part-time basis, worked with a part time basis, worked with an accountant during the financial meltdown. And I overheard some of her phone calls as she would talk to some of her clients, uh, some of them in their early to mid 60s, calling those clients. I mostly did tax prep for her, getting some documents and everything ready for the tax side of things. But mm-hmm. her investment side was just getting vaporized. And I, I saw the stress, I heard it in her voice, I heard the client calls saw the frustrations when she would have to say to folks, I'm sorry, Mr. Client, but hey, I know you're 62 years old, but you can't retire like we thought you could. That was a big wake-up call. It was almost like as a financial planner being dropped into the front lines of a war. And I didn't know whose side I was on anymore because <laughs> I, I really thought I was supposed to be promoting stock market investing. And then watching every house of cards come tumbling down, it really brought me to the brink of, should I even be in this space as of in, in personal financial planning? Thank goodness I kind of pressed through it, found other strategies for my own personal financial plan, as well as those of our clients. And that's what ultimately helped my wife and I set up this firm, Flake Growth Financial Services, where we work with clients all, all over the country to look at not-so-average ways of meeting their goals without taking a bunch of unnecessary risks. Yeah. Well, so let's start with the average ways.
1: <laughs> so if you're focused on not-so-average ways, yeah. what, what are the average <laughs> ways people typically go to or, or kind of the go-to strategies people use? And then and then let's talk about the different way that you look at things.
0: Sure. Yeah. I, first of all, let me just kind of describe the landscape. Then let's talk about what's what's out there yeah. as a solution. I do believe there's a massive problem and it was existing before this global pandemic i don't think we were we were already infected with a money problem well before this virus infected us and of yeah. course i want to say from the outset I, my concerns my prayers are out there for every family who's been medically and, and health-wise impacted and financially too yeah. but i do want to say that we were already in trouble before this crisis began things were not well in denmark you know <laughs> or yeah. in the united states for that matter yeah. you know the, so back in 1940 According to the U.S. Commerce Bureau, the average debt load for the average American was 11% of their income. So 11 cents on the dollar was going to service debt. Most recent data says it's 37% of our income. So we've more than tripled our debt load, and our savings in 1940 was almost 30% almost 30%, 30 cents on the dollar was being saved, can you imagine? Now we're at less than 5% right before this financial crisis hit. And wouldn't you believe that that's probably gotten a lot worse since we've all lost our jobs and everything else is going on, right? So that's a flip-flop. We went from a saving nation to a debtor nation in just one or two generations there. And I would say part of the reason for that is we've all been trying to keep up with an increasing standard of living. Mm -hmm. Our inflation rate has really just gobbled up the value of our dollar and so honestly what i hear most people say bruce when they sit down with us is hey mark i really just i I can't save i can't save anymore i got got too many bills i got kids that need to go to school the price of milk and whatever so you know i can't save as much so i'm gonna have to risk more and hope that my rate of return will be higher yeah and that's future the
1: future value of money will be better Like, I'm better off Mm -hmm. putting it on, taking the debt because it's going to be easier to service the debt in the future.
0: You bet. It's unfortunately a a problem. I mean, this is where the creation of average financial planning has come about. You know, 401ks, IRAs. 401k isn't even old enough to retire yet. That's how young that 401k product is. It's not even old enough to retire yet. And, you know, day trading, 529 plans, 403bs, mutual funds, stocks, they all have come as a result of that that move from being a saving nation to a speculating and indebted nation. So some thoughts that come to my mind are, if I have a, a bucket of money, let's say I, I can save 30% of my money in a in a tin can, mm-hmm. all right? So I've got 30% of my money earning 0% rate of return. Mm-hmm. So let's put it to a, a dollar amount. So I've got 100 bucks, I can save $30, I put it in a tin can in my backyard. And let's say my buddy down the street can only save 5% or $5, but he's going to double his money in, in the stock market every single year forever. Now, that's pretty unlikely, but let's just use that for an example. Okay. What is double five dollars? Five times two is ten dollars. Whereas, if I can save a volume of money greater than him, I'm going to beat him every time. You know, zero percent earning on thirty dollars is better than doubling my money on five dollars every year. You know, five times two is ten. Thirty times no return is still thirty dollars. Yeah. Uh, so it's not about the rate; it's about the volume that really counts here. Mm-hmm. Think of it this way, you know, if we get a vaccine uh, for this virus, it's not going to matter how fast that rate of injection goes into my arm. It's going to, what really saves a life is the volume, the correct amount of that injection. It's yeah. the volume, not the rate. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I I get the you have to put a volume aside. I guess I, I mean the general logic I think most people have been taught <laughs> is that you know compounding interest, right? It's like, yeah, you know mm. year over year, yeah. you know the doubling. You know if I put a piece of rice on the first square and two pieces of rice on the second square and I fill up a chessboard, right? That 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 is going to outpace. That's going to outpace uh, a, a non-compounding investment. Sure. So where, like where where does that not actually become true in the real world in terms of the, the advantage yeah. of compounding investments.
0: You're so right. And this is, again, part of the average way of thinking. And it was my own you know, belief system too. And as a CFP, you're really kind of, that's sort of hammered into you exactly. as a certified financial planner, compound Mm -hmm. returns, average rates of return. Let me walk through another thought experiment and apologies to anyone. I guess no one's driving these days. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyone who's, yeah, yeah, so if you're driving, pull the car over, but for all the rest of us still stuck at home, uh, try this little uh, thought exercise out, write down these numbers if you want to. Let's say Bruce, that you start with a 10,000 bucks of investment. Mm -hmm. and you give it to me. And this year I do so well for you. I double your money. All right. So now we've gone from 10,000 to 20,000 bucks with me on that so far. So the next year, let's say you start with 20 grand with me, right? You're so happy. You give it to me again for another year of investing and I lose half of your money, negative 50%. We're back down to $10,000. Two years have now gone by. Do you have any more money in your pocket? Nope. Nope. What was our average rate of return over those two years? Well, take 100, minus 50, divide by 2. That's a 25% average compound rate of return. But did you really actually do any better? No, of course not. The trouble is volatility. That is the big sneaking viper in our portfolios. Yeah. We can do 25% average rate of return, but end up with zero compound real return. That's called the, the compound annual growth rate for the fancy $2 cocktail party term there. But you know the true return of actual investors. Now, most people would say, hey, over the last century, the stock market has done 10% average, there's that word again, rate of return. But real investors, according to Dalbar's latest studies, Dalbar's a third party. They do an annual analysis of investor behavior, and they look at the real results of actual investors over the last 20, 30 years, whatever. So over the last 20 years, I'm looking at the data right now, mm-hmm. the real investors, including two bull markets now, was only 3.88% yeah. in the markets. And that's, that's including, the, trouble.
1: I mean, the, the other one is the your transaction fees, your management fees, you know, everything else on top I, of that. By the time right. you get there, mm-hmm. you're there, you're certainly down
0: to you know <laughs> single-digit mm-hmm. returns mm-hmm. at best. So, Bruce, we're talking about some of my big problems with average financial planning. One is we're putting our money in things that we have no access to and we have no control over. Yeah. And two, the only person who's guaranteed anything on your 401k or traditional investments is the investment advisor getting a fee yeah. off okay. of your back. And true returns are usually much less than the stated return on that mutual fund. Man, I've had so many people think they're getting a higher rate of return than they actually are. And it's just a problem of math, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the other big problems I have with traditional retirement plans and investments is that. You know those numbers that I just quoted—that 3.88 percent—that was before taxes were considered. So if we add taxes to the equation, our return is even less. And if honestly, if we add inflation, that makes it even less. Yeah, Yeah. inflation—we're probably negative at that point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now I don't know about most of your listeners, but Bruce, just on a personal level, do you think taxes over your lifetime are going to be lower or higher in the later years? in this economy? Uh, Right now?
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're going to be higher. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) yeah. Printing out trillions of dollars. Trillion dollars being printed quickly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So we're going to, the bill is going to come at some point here.
0: Now, what is a 401k, an IRA? If nothing else, it's a tax deferred, plan and most people don't stop and think about that definition what does the word defer mean well it means put off till later mm-hmm. well okay when when does it make sense to put off something you hate doing like should you defer a root canal <laughs> Probably not a good idea. (laughs) So most people simply, and myself included, I'm putting myself in this category, even going through the CFP training, I don't stop and think about the definition of words. And they're so important. You know, they're so important. Uh, There's a reason why the government created a 401k and an IRA to be tax deferred. There's no uh, free lunch here. Yes, sir. Yeah. So Part of it is just learning to think of strategies and concepts that put you back in control of your own money. If you're a business owner and you've got all of your money tied up in the walls of your house, like you're paying down your mortgage, and you've got a bunch of other money in a SEP or a Simple or a 401k, a solo 401k, all of that money is inaccessible to you in the midst of this moment when cash is king and cash flow is king. There's a reason why the PPP program that recently just ran out of money yeah. was out of money in just a few days. It's literally the the biggest free money grant. To it's not technically a grant; it's yeah. a loan. But yeah. most people see it like free money. There's a reason why it was out of cash in just a few days. Uh, it's because we just didn't have. We were already cash strapped as a nation. Yeah. You know, if we had a rainy day fund, we couldn't handle a drizzle, and we got a downpour. Yeah. Uh, in this financial crisis, yeah. so. Yeah, three three. I'm looking at it here. Three hundred and forty nine billion dollars was spent after just fourteen days.
1: Yeah, no, it's clear that the businesses, individuals, and, and businesses are, are quite addicted to
0: cash. <laughs> you
1: know, we need right. we need cash to survive, and unfortunately, you know, yeah. we, we don't have it here. We will gobble it up wherever else we can get it.
0: And you know, the addiction to cash is not a bad thing. It's I'm I'm addicted to oxygen. But that doesn't yeah. make it a bad thing, yeah. right? Uh, the problem is, where am I getting that oxygen from? If I'm on a, a bank's oxygen machine and and I have to live on that bank's line of credit mm-hmm. and they take that line of credit away from me then all of a sudden I starve and I and and I, I that's why so many businesses fail right yeah. Yeah. so you know where do we keep our cash what do we do in the midst of this calamity to make sure that this is the last recession we ever participate in Yeah. So I get
1: it. You know, lots of things about how traditional investment vehicles, about how we put things on credit, don't save, you know, all these things are problematic. But what's the option? Like, what's the Mm -hmm. alternative?
0: Yeah, that was my key question, too. So let's talk through a particular strategy that we use at our firm. It's not all we do. We're, we're a full financial firm and think through a comprehensive strategy for each client. But this has been especially helpful for a lot of our clients lately, especially in the midst of this crisis and especially for our business owners. So we'll get into that strategy, but let's talk concept for one more minute. Let's think about it from like a conceptual level. I like to start not with labels, but with functions. You know what, my label is certified financial planner, but nobody cares what my label is. (laughs) What they care about is what you can do for me, right? What you can do for me. Everyone's tuned in to the radio station W I I F M. What's in it for me? Yeah. So what can a financial product do for me? What do you want your money to do for you? What's the function? If you had just a few bucks and you had to put those dollars somewhere, what characteristics or attributes would you want your money to have? Because uh, I, I know it sounds so simple, but where you put your money, Bruce, makes it do different things. You know, a hedge fund yeah. is going to make your money act different than, say, a savings mm-hmm. account. Yeah, future value versus accessibility versus current leverage. Yeah, like all those yeah. different different variables. And everyone's going to maybe have a different answer to each of those things you just listed there. I think that's those are all really good examples of what I'm describing. You know, where you put your money makes it do different things. So the key question to ask yourself before we get into strategy and tactics is, what do you want your money to do for you? Do you want your money exposed to risk? Do you want your money to have a good, predictable rate of return? Do you want penalties to access the money before 59 and a half years old? Do you want access to the cash for any reason or do you want to have prohibited transactions on that money? Do you want that money to be protected from lawsuits, from creditors, from predators, Mm. from lawsuit risk? Do you want to be able to leverage that cash for greater amounts of money in the future? Do you want to be able to transfer that money to your heirs? Do you want to be able to get that money out without taxes due upon distribution whenever that day comes? Or even next Tuesday, do you want taxes due on that money? So those are a list of questions I asked myself as I was thinking through my own financial approach to life. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd add? You've you've already brought up a couple of really good ones there, Bruce. Anything else you'd want to see your money do for you or or for your clients? Well, I think it's a pretty good list. Yeah. And, you know, feel free to listen to that list again and answer those questions yourself before moving on, because it doesn't matter what I think or you think, what matters is what the client thinks. uh, Right. So, but here's what came to the bottom of all my sifting when I was looking at 450 different financial products, going through my own research as a CFP. I was trying to find something that would work for my business, something that would work for my clients. Before I started making recommendations, I wanted to get answers for myself. And after the financial crisis of 2008 and 9, I started really a journey looking at all these different financial products and to say yes to all those questions. No, I didn't want risk. Yes, I wanted access to my cash. Yes, I wanted tax-free access to the money. Yes, I wanted to be able to use it as leverage for lines of credit for my business no matter what banks were doing. Mm-hmm. What came to the end was strangely enough of all things Bruce a high cash value dividend paying whole life insurance policy. And that to me was wildly crazy because you know all I had ever been taught was stay away from whole life insurance, yeah. you know get into get into stock options, hedge funds, bond portfolios complex dynastic trusts, anything but whole life insurance, raw lands, tax strategies, whatever, (laughs) anything but whole life insurance, right? So why did I look into this any further? Well, it it took me a few months to get over my own bias. I was a big Dave Ramsey fan, Uh you know, and listened to him like he was the fifth gospel. But man, there was something very attractive to a modernized form of whole life insurance. And I'll share this quickly and then I'll hush for a few minutes, I promise. So whole life insurance, designed correctly, in the more modern world, it's been around for over 160 years and it's guaranteed to grow and increase in value every year in existence since 160 years. So straight through the last global pandemic of the Spanish flu of 1918, through the Great Depression, through stagflation of the 70s and 80s, straight through 2008, it was providing guaranteed growth for all of its policyholders. Whole life insurance also gives you easy access to cash for investments or for cash emergencies, like many business owners might be in right now. It is life insurance, so you're going to leave your family more than you could ever save on a guaranteed basis. Mm -hmm. And you can use it as a line of credit, like a bank. It's not technically a bank, but you are able to become your own source of financing and break free and fire your banker and set up your own repayment schedules for your own business. So that, to me, spelled financial freedom. Now, this is very different than old-fashioned whole life insurance, but any thoughts or feedback on any of that, Bruce? No, it's not, I mean, it, the way you've set it up, it sounds like, uh, you know, it gives you a lot of options and
1: it provides... A lot of kind of flexibility that we've talked about before in terms of the the things you want to get out of your money. Um, how what's the trade off? I guess what's what are the things yeah. that you have
0: to you have to give up to be able to get that flexibility? Right. Yeah. So it's not for everybody. It is designed for massive cash accumulation, old fashioned whole life insurance. Bruce was especially riddled with expenses. Yeah, and would take a long time to break even. This is not that. Uh, it it is designed with. About 70% of the expenses cut out, that would include the commissions, by the way, to the agent, and also the insurance expenses. So you're getting cash in the first month, somewhere between eight and 40 times more cash with most of the numbers that we run for clients, mm-hmm. because we're putting most of your money into an into a paid-up additions writer. You don't have to remember all these vocabulary words, <laughs> but the point is, we design them different, but, but we still get to keep the value of what Whole Life lets us do. As I mentioned, guaranteed growth every year. The tax-free nature of life insurance under current tax law is that you can get access to both the principal and the gains Mm -hmm. anytime you want with no taxes due. And you can borrow from the policy, and this is maybe the biggest one, but you can borrow from this policy like a line of credit to yourself. And when you borrow against the policy's cash value, Bruce, it'll continue to grow as if you had not touched the money. So I'll say that again because that's kind of mind boggling. If I've got a hundred grand in cash value, mm-hmm. and let's say I borrowed out thirty thousand yeah. bucks to help my business out in the midst of these troubling times, the policy that year would pay me a full guaranteed interest and a dividend on the entire one hundred thousand dollars as if I had not touched the thirty grand. And I've got my thirty grand out there in the world paying my payroll, yeah. helping buy equipment, investing in real estate, whatever it is. So because this is so different We typically just refer to these policies as bank on yourself type whole life policies since they're so different. So, you know, you asked about trade off. There is no get rich overnight strategy with this whole life policy. It's going to still take some years to really really look impressive the first few years there are still insurance costs so don't do this for overnight wealth Mm -hmm. don't do this if you're addicted to other people's debt you know like (laughs) other people's bank Uh, you know it's it does take time sometimes to kind of break free and firing your banker doesn't happen overnight so you know it is a one more thing too and and then i'll hush i promise uh, is the policy itself can be designed incorrectly and i've seen these really some folks might think they have something like this in their Mm -hmm. portfolio and it's unbelievably burdened with expenses it's going to be a taxable distribution for them in retirement it might even lapse which is a term for losing the life insurance and everything you paid into it you know just because it was designed by an advisor that may or may not understand what they were doing when they put it together for you yeah
1: yeah i've seen a lot of these things and and yeah generally my analysis has been the the fee structures and the the kind of constraints and ends up putting on the money ends up being not that worth it. It it sounds Mm -hmm. great in concept, but it ends up you know, when, when you really kind of look at it practically, it ends up not being as flexible as I originally kind of thought. And yeah, right. you, you really dig into the fee structures and the cost structures; it's oh, it big time, pretty unattractive.
0: Um, I'd say, I'd say, Dave Ramsey's right about ninety-five percent of whole life. I would stay away from. Yeah. So we refer to these as bank on yourself to categorically distinguish Got from it. what he's talking about on the radio. Whereas, you know, the fees and the expenses of life insurance most often are. You're right. It takes twenty plus years to break even. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, the time.
1: Frame is always, you know, when you do the analysis, it's the time it takes to kind of build enough cash value to have it really function the way you hope it to function. Um, Mm -hmm. Even in your bank on yourself strategies, what's the time period? Like, how how many years do you need to kind of just put this aside and put money into it? And before it really has some Mm -hmm. facility for you from a
0: banking point of view? Yeah, it's a smart question. I'll tell you a quick story. To answer it. Uh, so there's a gentleman who's out on the West Coast who had a million dollar line of credit with the banks in the midst of the last recession. And in 2009, he got a phone call from his bank saying they were cutting his line of credit in half. Yeah, that always happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what's that old quote by Mark Twain? A banker is a fellow who lends you his umbrella when the sun is shining, but wants it back <laughs> as soon as it starts to rain. <laughs> yeah. So th- he was immediately impacted. His business needed that line of credit, using it all the time, regularly, so to have it cut in half. And then two weeks later, Bruce, they called him up, said they're cutting it in half again, Yeah. quarter million. And then finally, they termed out the loan, meaning they said, give us all our money back. Mm-hmm. We were out of business with you. Give us all our money in five years. So they were going to term out his loan over five years. Mm -hmm. He had five years to save his business. So what he did was he paid them. He said, I'm sick and tired of playing with banks. I'm going to be my own source of financing. And in five years... Even in the first year, he had cash values in his life insurance policy that exceeded $1 million. So he packed money into that policy, and he had several hundred thousand in the first month, in the first year of his policy. Mm -hmm. And by year five, he had a full $1 million in his cash value. By the time the banks were through with him, he was through with the banks. And from here on, he's been his own line of credit to himself. Now, what if you or all of us had that kind of tenacity to say, I'm done with these banks. It's all about how much you pack into the policy. Most people think I want to put as little into insurance premiums as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get very little out. You know, if you plow more money into the policy, if you shift your mindset to think different about how savings work and use the policy as a reservoir for your contingency capital Mm -hmm. uh, for opportunities and emergencies like this guy went through, then you'll have your line of credit ready to go in whatever period of time is necessary to, to break you free from the banks. Does that get to your question? Chris? Yeah, I think so. No, I mean,
1: again, I understand it conceptually. I think it's uh, it's it's figuring out how does the, a particular policy work and how are you going to use it over what kind of time frame? Right. and The numbers kind of end up footing you know correctly for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like the it sounds like the trade offs are you need a little time. Uh, you yep. need to kind of put some time. You need to put some money in it, right? Obviously, you you need to the more you put in it to in the beginning, the more facility it's going to have later. So you need to make some trade offs to be able to free up that cash so you can put value into it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, absolutely yeah don't do this for overnight wealth this yeah. is not an investment this won't you know it's not meant to be a get rich overnight kind of strategy. It is a save it and set it aside and heck, use it in the first few months if you had to. I certainly have had clients do that. You do have cash value in the first month, but it's meant to be a long-term financial strategy for sure, Bruce. Yeah, and what are the
1: upper limits? I mean, if you've got a business who may be doing a couple million in revenue a year and you're hoping to get to you know tens, if not hundreds of millions of revenue, like where does this sort of cap out in terms of the ability to serve as an as a sort of essentially a banking vehicle for you and your business, what's the upside limit on this?
0: Yeah, and you know there's a lot of examples of this out there in the wild too. If you look at if you just Google the words corporate owned life insurance or COLI as it's called, uh-huh. I'm doing it right now. Corporate owned life insurance. There is hundreds of billions of dollars that corporations own of life insurance for their businesses, lines of credit, and to cover their own capital. Expenses and purchasing capital assets, there is no technically upper limit to what you could put into this policy except what your own insurable limits are. And what that means is what is an underwriter at an insurance company willing to approve you for in terms of death benefit? So, my job and the job of our advisors here at our firm is to squeeze down that death benefit as hard as we can. That's where most of the expenses are anyway and flood your premium your hard-earned savings premiums into the cash value side of the policy. So we're uh, raising up how much you can pack in and giving you more equity right away by squeezing down that death benefit that cuts our commissions, it also cuts the expenses out of the policy. Mm-hmm. So as far as upper limit goes, yeah, what you know, there is technically no limit except what maybe your revenues are for your business and multiplying that by certain factors at the insurance company and they do all that math. As you go through the application process to get this policy, whatever it is, got it. So if I have a, a business that's doing ten million
1: in top line revenues, you know, and say it's dropping ten percent, fifteen percent of the bottom line, so I've got a million, million and a half in annual profits coming out. That's essentially what's going to be used to calculate the insurable maximum that they c- you can write the policy against.
0: Correct. Yeah, and I don't recommend folks put every penny into these policies. Certainly not. You want a diversified portfolio uh, that helps meet all of your objectives. But this is certainly a great alternative to cash allocations in your portfolio. Like think about the alternatives, right? Savings accounts. What is that? Oh yeah. Money yeah. market accounts. What oh, is well, that? Please you know? no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we have got folks who are using their policies as a bond fund replacer and a cash allocation replacer in their portfolios. It's like a just another bucket for your capital yeah. expenses and you know, allocate accordingly. Is there anything about uh, if I have a say
1: a partnership or investors in the company? How do you deal with the when the owner? The individual owner is not necessarily the primary sole shareholder of the company, and and then also like if you go to sell the company, how does some of this stuff work? Like how do you this this change? Do, do you have to kind of unwind this stuff if you go to do an asset transfer or a, a sale of the company?
0: Oh, that's a really smart question. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad to hear you asking exit questions because all of us will exit from everything in life eventually. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> we need that exit lane somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we unravel this? There's a few really cool ways to do it, and I'll keep it brief for your listeners. One is you can use your own, the policy that's tied to your life. Let's say you're the owner or part owner of this of this business. Mm-hmm. The business can use this as a bonus structure for you to own the policy personally. And so you're funding your own buyout, essentially. And you've got a golden parachute you can walk away with or jump from the business from with, with You know, as much as several million, tens of millions of dollars in cash if you had it ready to go by retirement. Uh, So that's one option. Another option is you can let the business have that as an asset on their balance sheet. The cash value, that is, of the life insurance, again, maybe it's a couple hundred thousand at that point, maybe it's a couple ten of millions of dollars that is an asset on the balance sheet of the business that makes you more sellable to whomever you might decide to sell your business to. In that case, even if you leave the business, retire on an island somewhere, and and room for me on the beach, by the way, (laughs) then your business has a line of credit tied to your life insurance that they can use. I I say line of credit, but technically it's the cash value of the policy Uh that they can use. For their own purposes, even if you've long since gone and retired to a to that beautiful island, got it. So the vehicle can kind of separate or can stay
1: with the business, even if you're going to leave. That's right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating structure. I mean, I think everyone, you know, everyone right now is scrambling to figure out alternatives. I think everyone is feeling the pain of their um, the cash crunch, the credit crunch that we're in. You know, so I think everyone's kind of. Rethinking, rethinking how they're setting things up, and and while I'm sure a lot of people are in crisis and kind of figuring out how to get through the next couple of weeks, couple of months, you know, hopefully you know towards the end of the year, as people kind of get their feet back under them, they'll start thinking right. about how do I want to do things differently, and and you know every every crisis is an opportunity as well, so it's kind of figuring out what are you going to learn from this and and what are you going to do differently. So this has been really helpful. I think it's a, a fascinating kind of look at really how how do we set up our businesses, how do we look at the whole idea of credit and the whole idea of lending and rethinking. Rethinking this from how can I be my own source of funding? You know, whether it's you know these vehicles or just how do I think about putting away money? <laughs> Basically, yeah, I can, mm-hmm. I can I can do the things I want rather than constantly be going back to the line of credit, get back to the capital market to try to find more growth capital. So
0: there you go. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, we've seen three major market crashes in just the last twenty years. Yeah, three major recessions in just the last twenty years. Do we think? Do we really think that we're done with them now? that this is the last time we'll ever have a recession? (laughs) Probably not, right? Yeah, hopefully it's it's the last pandemic that I have to go through, but (laughs) certainly not. Dear God, I hope so. Yeah, Uh, I'm with you on that. Now, do do we want to participate in that next recession? Do you want to have happen to you next time what's happening to you right now? If not... Let's make our own PPP program, right? Let's call it yeah. the I don't know personal protection policy, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's set up something that's going to protect you from ever participating in a recession ever again. In fact, if you're going to participate in a recession, be the buyer, be the bank, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. You know, if you've got a big pile of money and everyone else is scraping, you're going to find some deals oh, next yeah. time around. Exactly.
1: That's uh, that's the hope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mark, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about late Growth, what's the best way to get that information?
0: Thanks. Uh, and thanks again, Bruce. You've got a great show. I've really enjoyed it. you got a subscriber in me. Uh, yeah, you can go to solution Solutiontocashflow.com. solution You can use either the, the number two or T-O, solution And you can actually reach out to me or one of my colleagues. We're all trained in the bank on yourself method. And uh, we won't mess you up with a policy that's not designed correctly. We've all been architects and trained in this strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're ready to work with business owners from all scales. Uh, So yeah, solution to cashflow.com, best way to reach out.
1: Awesome. I will make sure that the link is in the show notes here, so people can click through. Again, Mark, this has been a pleasure. I love talking about different ways of thinking, different approaches to stuff, and uh, you know, helping companies get cash right is one of the hardest things that I find. And so, if you can figure out this problem, it makes so many
0: other problems easier. So, yeah. I really yeah. appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. And uh, let's look to the world when even just 10% of Americans and 10% of business owners had something like this. Man, we'd all be in a different place right now.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll follow up in a couple of months, and we'll see how we're doing